If you want to get your Bibles out a while and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 21. So for the next couple of weeks, uh, we have kind of a mini-series within our study of Luke where Jesus has this uh, extended conversation with his disciples about what lies ahead and uh, the future. And so next week we're going to talk about um, his encouragement for us not to be frightened by persecution that will precede his return. Following week we'll talk about uh, Jesus' actual uh, return. He's on his way. And today I want to talk about um, not being fooled by claims. In the interim period between when Jesus goes back to heaven and when he returns uh, back to earth, there are going to be uh, people and things that claim to be uh, other saviors. When I was uh, in elementary school, uh, we were in the midst of the Cold War, and so most of us kids were um, bombarded with um, uh, fears that we were going to be nuked by the Russians at some point. And if you're old enough, some of you remember this, we would do drills uh, at school, hiding under our desks in the event that the Russians launched on us. You imagine how helpful that would be. <laughs> a nuclear missile hits Whitmer Heights uh, uh, Elementary School, and we're like, but thank goodness I was under, <laughs> under a desk. So we were, we were afraid about a nuclear holocaust in, in uh, 1960. 1970, we were afraid of an exploding world population. Uh, some of you may have heard of a best-selling book that was written in 1968 by Paul and Ann Ehrlich. He was a Stanford University prof, a book called The Population Bomb. And he argued that the world was overpopulated, we weren't going to be able to feed people. He said... Uh, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. And if you lived through the 1970s, you know that wasn't true. Uh, there were famines and, and there were people starving in the world, but not in the uh, scope that he and his wife spoke about. Ten, another 10 years later, a Columbia professor by the name of Wallace Smith Brocker uh, spoke uh, out about the impending global warming disaster. He was one of the first uh, who talked about this, that this was uh, around the corner. Um, 20 years later, our fear was all about terrorism. And here we are now another 20 years later. It's all climate change, terrorism, uh, and, and a hundred more things that we're frightened about as we look to the future and say, what, what's going what's to happen next? Fear makes us look for someone or something to save us. Take a look. Every generation has a few truly exceptional minds, and Stephen Hawking was one of the most brilliant we had to offer. When he passed away in 2018, the world lost one of the few people who probably could have thought of a way out of the mess that we've made of the world. But he may have left us one last gift, and that's a warning that the end is nigh. This is what he thought was going to happen. Just a few weeks before he died, he released a paper called A Smooth Exit from Eternal Inflation, and it's a strangely beautiful look at how he believed the universe began, grew, and will finally end. 
It's abstract and complicated stuff that even most scientists don't understand, and dissecting what it's all about isn't easy. At the heart of the matter is this. Stephen Hawking and paper co-author Thomas Hertog essentially speculate the end of the universe will be something of a relatively smooth transition into the after, and cosmologist Andre Linde translated a bit of the heaviest stuff like this. They argue that the end of eternal inflation, the expansion of the universe, may occur in a smooth way and the variety of the possible outcomes is limited. That's vague in a sort of anticlimactic end to the universe, but there's a good chance no one on Earth will be around to see it. When it comes to the end of our own world, however, Hawking made some incredibly dire predictions about it. Wired asked him about the relentless march toward developing artificial intelligence, and he warned it might mean the end of mankind in a way that we've long thought of as being science fiction. The genie is out of the bottle. We need to be mindful of its very real dangers. I fear that AI may replace humans altogether. Someone will design AI that replicates itself. This will be a new form of life that will outperform humans. Speaking at a summit in Portugal in 2017, he warned that the rise of AI had the potential to be incredibly dangerous. He's spoken about it for years and in 2014 told John Oliver, Artificial intelligence could be a real danger in the not too distant future. It could design improvements to itself. He foresaw not just autonomous robots, but autonomous weapons, too. And when one of the most brilliant minds in the world warns that science fiction might become science fact, the rest of the species should probably listen. Why should I not be excited about fighting a robot? <laughs> He's also suggested we're in danger of destroying ourselves before we even get that far, and in 2017, he talked to the BBC about how we're doing it. A huge part of our mistakes involve climate change, and he cited U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to withdraw America from the Paris Agreement as particularly worrying. He said, we are close to the tipping point where global warming becomes irreversible. Trump's action could push Earth over the brink, and by pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, Donald Trump will cause unavoidable environmental damage to our beautiful planet, endangering the natural world for us and our children. Hawking was absolutely not kidding around, and when he spoke at the Starmus 4 Festival in 2017, he stressed how important it was that we find a way to colonize other planets if we want the human race to survive. Only the previous year, Hawking predicted that mankind had only about a thousand years before the planet became incapable of supporting human life, and we needed to find a new place to live pretty pronto. At the time, he was optimistic that mankind would get its act together, but by 2017, he revised his time frame to a mere 100 years. Some might be able to agree it was a rough year, but that rough? Hawking also made some other comments in 2017 that got almost just as much attention. At the Tencent Wii Summit, he predicted overpopulation and the subsequent energy consumption were going to get to an unsustainable point in just 600 years, give or take. Put it all together and he paints a pretty dire picture of our world's future if things continue in the direction they're going. Overpopulation, climate change, energy consumption, artificial intelligence leading to a major war against machines, those are all things humans are doing to ruin the planet. But Hawking has also said there's the chance the end of the world is going to come from something well beyond the control of any human. Well, that's exciting. A, a lot of fears, a lot of anxieties about the future, wondering what's actually going to happen. Will this doom us? Will that doom us? But did you catch that, that statement at the end? Hawking has also said there's a chance that the end of the world is going to come from something well beyond the control of any human. And those of us who read our Bibles say, amen, amen. And we're in the hands of 
that one. So let's read a couple of verses here in Luke 21. I'm going to start at verse 5, and we'll pray and, and uh, spend some minutes talking about it. <clears throat> so again, this is shortly before Jesus goes to the cross. Um, we're down to the last uh, few days before his betrayal. Some of Jesus' disciples began talking about the majestic stonework on the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Teacher, they asked, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? And he replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and saying, the time has come. But don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. And then he added, nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and there will be famines and plagues in many lands, and there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. Let's pray together. Oh, the Lord Jesus, um, you are the invisible, or the visible image of the invisible God. And you existed before anything was created, and you are supreme over all creation. For through you, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth, made the things we can see, the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through you and for you. You existed before anything else, and you hold all creation together. You're also the head of the church, which is your body. You are the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, and so you are first in everything. For your Father, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in you, and through you, God has reconciled everything to himself. He has made peace with everything on heaven and on earth by means of your blood on the cross. Wow, that is such good news. And as we think about this world and where it has been and where it seems to be now and where it seems to be going, it is so good to know that it, things are not out of control, that the one who made it all is still seated on the throne and has a plan for the end. And the one who's made all that and who's planned all that loves his children with an everlasting love. And so these next few weeks, Lord, as we talk about the inevitable march toward the end, that rather than be um, distraught, frightened, worried, they, we might be encouraged and even excited knowing that ultimately this will redound to your glory and bring good things to your people. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you think about these disciples and if they could only have understood what lay ahead of them just a couple of days from now, you would think they wouldn't be tourists looking at the massive stone that was used to build these temples. And they're, that's kind of how they were acting there. They're talking about the, the beautiful 
uh, temple that was before them that Herod had just completed not that long before and uh, saying, look at these amazing stones. And they were. You know, we think about uh, what people did in ancient days and think, and they had it really rough. They couldn't do much. They didn't have science. They didn't have technology. And yet the stones that were used to build this temple were anywhere between 50 and 80 tons, a single stone quarried from limestone quarries nearby and then somehow transported to the site, somehow milled to perfection. They were square. They were level. And, uh, they were, and they were admittedly beautiful. And Jesus shifts their attention. <laughs> he's not, he's not, um, we're not here as tourists. There are bigger things a- ahead. And he says, do you realize these stones one day are not going to be stacked up, up one on the other anymore? And this was not far off. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus um, entered Jerusalem uh, in the response to a Jewish revolt. And he literally tore the temple down. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he got these massive stones torn down one from another. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand there's, there's, there's something far bigger in, in the works here than seeing beautiful buildings or, or even uh, making advances in technology and architecture and, and engineering. Something, there's, the, there's a God over all of this who has a plan, and it's going to march toward its inevitable conclusion. And he has two basic um, warnings in this text for his disciples. And I'm going to address them in reverse order. The first one was, don't be led astray. Don't be fooled by the claims of others. The second one, don't be scared. And I want to focus on that one first, don't be scared. Again, he says in verses 9 uh, 9 through 11, when you hear of wars and insurrection, don't panic. These things must take place first, but the end won't immediately follow. And then he added, nation will go against, uh, to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Great earthquakes will come, great famines, plagues in the lands, terrifying things, and great miraculous signs from heaven. And one of the cautions that is embedded in this is don't assume that because you see this, that means this. You see wars, you see insurrection, you see plagues and so forth. That doesn't necessarily mean that tomorrow is going to be the wrap-up of history. Just this year, there have been about 90,000 people killed because of wars. Places like Syria, Yemen, uh, Afghanistan. The war in Mexico with the drug cartels alone has cost 17,000 lives. Just 2019. And we think, oh, you know, the, the world's going to pot And yet, if you just go back 25 years, in 1994, 93, um, in one country, in six weeks, about 800,000 people died. Rwanda, the genocide there. And we could go back through history and see uh, war after war, uh, civil um, unrest, revolts, claiming the lives of many, many people. And Jesus is cautioned, don't conclude because of that that the end is right around the corner. Every time there's a new war in the Middle East, every time there's something that makes headlines for more than a week, um, Christians everywhere start jotting down their thoughts and writing and selling books about the end is right around the corner. In the 1973 uh, uh, Six-Day War, um, there were books that were now, they're now collecting dust on shelves that were saying, you know, the end is coming. Jesus is he's right on the cusp of coming back, and here we are, Uh, 50 years later 
earthquakes. Um, do you realize that every year there are about 20,000 earthquakes that take place all over the planet? About 50 a day, according to the National Earthquake Information Center. And some of the biggest ones don't even get uh, on the news because they occurred in places where there really isn't many people. And so it's not affected individuals, even though the ground is, is torn up. Famines. Again, we have food shortages today in places like Syria and Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, uh, Venezuela. Uh, a lot of people that are hungry, places like Yemen, on the verge of starving. That has happened in the past. It will happen in the future. We have plagues. We've got an Ebola plague for the last 14 months in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a cholera uh, epidemic in Yemen. And all of this stuff, we read the newspapers, we hear the news, we see videos like that, where uh, you know, the, the anxiety level goes up, and, and we think we're in such a mess. Who's going to fix this mess? What can we do to change our future and and let me let me say something here um, there are there are problems on planet earth that we can help abate maybe that's not the right word we can help address and so we can help with food needs uh, we, we can help with the environment uh, guys when you change the oil in your car don't dump it in the ground it's a bad idea uh, there are a lot of things that we can do to, to stave off uh, problems. But the bottom line is the problems ultimately, no problem, we can't eradicate all problems. We can do something to help, but we cannot eradicate all problems because ultimately there's one person that's going to fix our problems. And it's not the scientists and, and it's not the environmentalists, and it's for sure not the politicians. It's ultimately going to be God himself. And so Jesus, I think, is saying two things when he's saying uh, don't be scared. One, don't be scared of the things themselves because you're in my hand. And two, don't assume that the end is uh, right around the corner. It may not be. There are going to be a lot of things that take place until the end comes. Don't be scared. But the thing I want us to focus on for the rest of our time this morning is don't be led astray. In verse 8, Jesus says, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and saying the time has come, but don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't, pat, don't panic. Don't be led astray. Now, if you're old enough, some of you remember uh, something called the Jonestown Massacre. Tomorrow is the 41st anniversary of that event in Guyana, South America. Jonestown was developed by a charismatic figure by the name of Jim Jones. He had a social ministry in San Francisco originally. And it was interesting, this is a guy who didn't believe in God at all, but he was ordained in the Disciples of Christ Church. And he was ordained because a Methodist minister urged him to get ordained. He said, look, you have an interest in uh, developing a, a, a new social community. Uh, he was by his own admission a socialist. He was by his own admission a communist. And this Methodist minister said, look, if you become a clergyman, you can get these things accomplished under the umbrella of religion, which is going to draw a lot of people to you. And it did. 
People who had no family, people who had no place to go were drawn to his ministry. He, had a, uh, he would give food out. He would help people get off drugs. And there were some good things that were taking place. But over time, it became a cult uh, focused on Jim Jones. He was paranoid to an extreme. And when he became convinced that the uh, government was after him, he decided to move his whole group to Guyana, South America, where they leased about 4,000 acres from the government. And they were in the midst of jungle, and they put everybody to work. It was about 1,000 of them, just under 1,000. And they cleared the jungle, and they built buildings, and, and it was a commune of the strictest sense. You had, nobody had any possessions of their own. Nobody had any money of their own. And there was some shenanigans going on about uh, sex, as there always is in these groups. So nobody really had any of their own uh, partners. And the day came when the government decided to investigate what was going on down there where, after they had gotten enough letters from family members who were concerned about um, their family members that were in Jonestown. And so a United States uh, congressman flew there with some journalists and some aides, and things didn't really go well. They, during their meeting with Jim Jones, um, somebody tried to stab uh, Congressman Ryan, they decided they should leave, and they went back to the airport. And when they did, the escorts from the cult uh, opened fire, killing the congressman and a, a number of other people. Uh, word got back to Jim Jones what had happened, and he decided now's the time for all of us to do what we had been drilled to do, and that's take their lives. And so um, in a matter of hours, 918 people lost their lives. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because Jim Jones, despite not being a religious man, claimed that he was Jesus Christ. He also claimed that he was the reincarnation of Buddha and so forth. And some of you also know 1993, ATF agents uh, laid siege to a compound in Waco, Texas, where a leader of a cult who called himself David Koresh, his real name was Wayne Howell, um, they were armed, they had weapons, and there had been a, a, a confrontation earlier that cost the lives of seven of the cult, uh, six of the cult members and four ATF agents. And so things got ugly after two months. Uh, eventually, compound burned down, cost the lives of about 78 people, men, women, and children. Again, David Koresh claimed that he was the Lamb of God mentioned in Revelation 5, and we know that to be Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem. Most of us would look at those kinds of individuals and say, I would never be duped by somebody like that. Is Jesus telling me that, that I should be careful not to be led astray by whack jobs like this? Who would ever be seduced by people like that? Certainly not me. And, and that may be true. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever loaned money to somebody that you turned out shouldn't have loaned money to? Have you ever been taken in by a, 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 an applicant to work for your company and it looked like a great, uh, great prospect and you hired them and it turned out to be a train wreck? Somebody brought that up Tuesday night when our conversation about future hiring of a preaching pastor. What happens if we hire somebody and six months in we like, this was a bad choice. How do, we, how, do we get, how do we get rid of him? Some of you know what that's like. You've hired people that you thought were going to be good employees and they turned out not to be. Um, 
Some of you had romantic relationships that you thought were going to be the bee's knees. If you're 70 or older, you know what the bee's knees are. You thought she was the right person. You thought he was the right person. And then maybe you got serious in your relationship or maybe you actually got married and, and this person changed in front of your eyes and you're like, uh-oh. My point is all of us get taken in sometime by somebody. But I suspect that most of us won't be seduced by the likes of a Jim Jones or the likes of a David Koresh. But let me ask you this question. What is it that you get mad at God about? Or what is it that you are most afraid of? If you scratch down into the answers to those two questions, you, you can find out what, what are your most likely alternative saviors to Jesus. In other words, what if Jesus was not only warning us about flaky people that show up and claim to be actually be the incarnate uh, Jesus, the second coming of Jesus? What if he is warning us about all kinds of things, all kinds of people that can lead us astray and assure us of happiness, of great life and joy and delight and hope? Let me read a verse for you, a couple of verses for you out of Matthew chapter 23. This is the same, this is the recounting of the same talk that we're reading about in Luke. There's a little more detail here. Matthew chapter 24, I say 23, 24, uh, beginning of verse 23. Then if, as Jesus is speaking, then if anyone tells you, look, here is, anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen one, ones. That's you if, it's Christ, if you're a Christian. To perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. This suggests that even the most dedicated Christians are close to being convinced that someone or something else is a savior. So again, it might not be or he might not be calling himself Jesus. But again, ask yourself, what is it that you get mad at God about? What is it that God has not come through for you on? And you're ticked about that. That may be an alternate savior. You haven't been able to have a biological child, and it infuriates you. I have to have a biological child. That, that's, that's what brings me happiness. That's what's my alternative savior. I have to have a better job than I have. I have to, and I'm furious that God hasn't given it to me. That's your alternative savior. And, Ask yourself what you are frightened most about. I'm afraid my health is not going to be good. Maybe it's when I get older or maybe I'm already, I'm having problems and I cannot live like this. I can't live like this. 
or I'm married to somebody that's, uh, I have had, I've shared this before, I've had a number of women uh, in my ministry who have shared with me uh, they're married and they're not happily married and they say, I just, I just want a white knight. They actually use that language, I just want a white knight. And I usually tell them, good luck with that. I haven't met any yet. I, I've got to have a good marriage, far better than the one I, I have to have more, I have to have more money. That's my alternative savior. I'm, Jesus is not enough. Or I have to have people like me. I cannot live with the fact that this person and that person or maybe the really important people don't like me or they maybe don't even know I, I exist. I have to have we talked about politics the other week. I have to have an America that looks just like I want it to look like. It's not only an alternative uh, savior, that's an alternative kingdom. Are you following what I'm saying? That Jesus may not just be warning about us about people that draw us away and convince, try to convince us that they're the Messiah, but all kinds of things in our lives that becomes so important to us that when I go, yeah, I know Jesus forgave me for my sins I'm, and I'm glad for that, but I have all this other stuff that's really important to me that makes my life worth living or not worth living. A savior is anything that I have to have in addition to Christ. And it's the, most of these things uh, in our lives are are good things. They begin as a comfort to us, but they shift and become our confidence. They, they were once a solace to us, but then they have become a savior to us. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters, says, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good they are, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. In this chapter that we just read from Matthew 24, in verse 12, Jesus said that one of the indicators in the march toward Jesus' return is that many Christians' love for Jesus will grow cold. One of the evidences, one of the uh, common occurrences as we get closer and closer to when Jesus returns is that people that come to churches like this on Sunday mornings and profess faith in Christ, that their love will get cold. And I suspect that some of that, perhaps most, will be the result of their love for other people and love for other things growing so hot that eventually Jesus gets displaced. I, I shared with you, if you were here a number of years ago, I've admitted on a couple occasions the most important thing to me in life is this young lady sitting here in the front row. And I have wrestled with the fact that she is uh, the closest thing to an idol in my life. There are other things that are close, but she's the closest. And a number of years ago, I began to pray 
And it was a scary prayer because I think many of us instinctively think if we, if we lay things on the altar before God, he's going to take them from us and test us. And so I began to pray. I said, God, if you take Betty from me someday, prepare my heart in such a way so that I do not lash out at you, so that I don't reject you, so that I don't, I'm not angry at you because of this. Because most of you know I believe in a sovereign God that he is over everything, that everything that occurs he has his fingers in. And so I would assume that with, with her. And I begin to pray that, and I continue to pray that because I, I hold on to her more tightly than anything in my life. And Keller says in this book, he says, worship, it is worship that is the final way to replace the idols of your heart. It is worship that is the final way to replace the idols of your heart. In other words, it's not just enough to renounce our idols, but we must begin to worship God in greater and greater measure so that the worship of these other things is diminished and our hands are pried away from them. It is worship that is the final way to replace the idols of your heart. You cannot get relief simply by figuring out your idols intellectually. You have to actually get the, the peace that Jesus gives, and that only comes as you worship. Analysis can help you discover truths, but then you need to pray them into your heart, and that takes time. And so I wonder this morning as we've been talking if there are things that have come to your mind that you say, you know what, that or he or she is so important to me that it eclipses the importance that Jesus has in my life. Yeah, I'm thankful he saved me from my sins, but I, I don't really think that the rest, uh, I, want all, I want this and this and this for the rest of my life in addition to sins forgiven. And I wonder if you've come up with something in your mind. And I want us to just bow our heads at this point. And if that's the case, and maybe you want to slip out of the prayer room too and spend some uh, more extended time with the Lord. But if you've come up with something, I want you to just talk to the Lord about it right now and say, God, I don't, um, I, maybe I didn't, maybe you didn't even realize it before. I realize it now. And to acknowledge that and lay it at the Lord's feet and then ask him to begin to take you on a journey of worship that will, over time, you know, right here, this thing is here right now, right now, that over time, as worship grows, that the worship for Christ grows, that worship for that thing or that person will begin to diminish. Not maybe your love for it, not maybe your desire for it, but its rightful place in your life. Just you have some time to do some business with God.
God, you already know our hearts before we had any conversation with you. In some moments in our lives, that's terrifying. In others, it's incredibly reassuring. And so what we've just shared with you is not news. You already knew my um, good love for my wife that can become this overarching love that sees her as a kind of a savior. You already knew that I can do that with this church and I have in my life, in my mind, I, I, I have to be the pastor here. You already knew my fears of money and how that can become gripping in my soul. You already knew the times when I shied away from appropriate conflict because I wanted people to like me. You already knew all these things. And you knew all that is in my brothers and sisters' hearts as well. And you long to see us have those things and those people have their rightful place in our hearts instead of that superior place as a savior in our hearts. And so in the months ahead, Lord, as we have perhaps done some analysis this morning that maybe we haven't done for a while or maybe even ever, that we've done the analysis that you would help us to indeed pray into our soul through worship, a, a right ordering of your position in our lives and everything and everybody else's. That, that as the days unfold, the, the peace and the contentment that begins to take greater and greater control of our lives would communicate to us the balance is taking place. The, the, the rightful spot is being given to the Lord of our lives and other lords and saviors are getting their rightful spot in our lives. We love you, Lord. We are so grateful that you were, um, that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and that you were willing to um, lay down everything and offer up, just like you asked Abraham to do with Isaac, offer up your one and only son as a substitutionary atonement for us. We who could not fix ourselves, just like we can't fix the world. We couldn't fix ourselves, but you did in Christ. And I pray for those who might be here this morning who feel like their lives are unfixed. They desperately need to... To, to get a wrench on their lives, a, a, a screwdriver in their lives, something to fix them. I pray that they'd hear a message this morning that tells them they can't, but that there is a God in heaven who can, and that maybe this would be the day of their salvation. We love you, Lord. Thanks for your mercy in our lives when we're messed up. Thanks for your grace and for the hope that we have in Jesus. Amen.